as we continue our look at Abram and his life, Abraham and what he can teach us, uh, I want to share with you this story, and many of you will know it. One of the most daring, amazing rescue operations in modern history happened between May 26 and June 4, 1940, when more than 338,000 Allied soldiers during the Second World War uh, were rescued from the beaches of Dunkirk. Um, this beach in the north of France and the rescue operation was needed because there was intense fighting. Large numbers of Belgian, British, and French troops were cut off and surrounded by the German troops during the six-week Battle of France. And the effort was codenamed to rescue these men, Operation Dynamo. It has been called the Miracle of Dunkirk. In a speech to the House of Commons, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill called this a colossal military disaster and said that the whole root and core of the, and brain of the British Army had been stranded at Dunkirk and seemed about to perish or be captured. On the first day of the operation, only 7,669 Allied soldiers were evacuated. But by the end of the eighth day, 338,226 had been rescued by a hastily assembled fleet of over 800 vessels. Many troops were able to embark from the harbor's protective concrete mold in, in the harbor Onto 39 British Royal Navy destroyers, four Royal Canadian Navy destroyers, and at least three French Navy destroyers, and a variety of civilian craft as well. Some were ferried to the larger ships by what became known as the Little Ships of Dunkirk. It was a flotilla of merchant marine boats, fishing boats, pleasure craft, yachts, and lifeboats called into service from Britain. It was an absolutely amazing effort. Uh, a few couple of years ago, uh, an amazing movie was made about the story of Dunkirk. On the last day of the evacuation, Prime Minister Churchill uh, gave a speech to the House of Commons in the British Parliament. He told them about the operation and how uh, it was a, a, a tremendous, amazing rescue. But he also gave him a warning not to lose sight of something. He said during the speech, um, we must not be, we must be very careful not to assign to this deliverance the attributes of a victory. Wars are not won by evacuation. But in that speech, it has become known as one of the greatest of World War II era. Churchill had to admit the Battle of France was disastrous. But then he gave a rousing speech that indicated the British people would never give up the fight. Listen to what he had to say. I have myself full confidence that if I all do their duty, if nothing is neglected and if the best arrangements are made as they are being made, we shall prove ourselves once again to defend our island and home, to ride out the storm of war, and to outlive the menace of tyranny. If necessary, for years, 
if necessary, alone. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We will fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And even if, which I do not for a a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until, in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to rescue and the liberation of the old. I love a good rescue story. And it's particularly wonderful when it is absolutely true. This isn't a Hollywood plot line that no one could believe. It happened. And in this morning's text, we're going to look at an absolutely amazing story of rescue through the hand of God and through His servant, Abram. Please stand as we, as I read from the Word, Genesis 14, 1 through 16. And listen very carefully. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariach, king of Eleazar, Kedileomar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shanab, king of Admah, Shemithar, king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Ketelamar. But in the not thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year Ketelamar and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Suzim in Ham, the Amim in Shavev Kiraitham, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh. And he defeated all the country of the Malachites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazaron, Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim. With Kedorlaomar, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Araphel, king of Shinar, and Ariach, king of Eleazar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their possessions, and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. 
When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all of the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Abram comes to the rescue. Our text confronts us with an ancient problem of evil and weaves into that problem a story of faith, a story of courage, and a story of victory. So we're going to take a look at the story itself. And how that story then impacts our lives. And we will begin where our story does. And our story begins with a dream that turned into a nightmare. A dream that turned into a nightmare. Lot had plans. Lot had a vision of what he wanted for his life. And he made it when Abram told him, choose what part of the land you want. And this man, this nephew of Abram, part of Abram's household now, Lot had made a decision he thought was best for himself. When he's given the choice, where do you want to live? Where do you want to take your people, your flocks, your men? Where do you want? Lot chose to go to the Jordan Valley. It was fertile. It was beautiful. It was a home of cities, so it wasn't out in the middle of nowhere. And those cities lured Lot in. He saw it and he wanted, no doubt, he, he pictured a life of prosperity, a life of peace, because he is now in the home he wanted. But as we looked at the, the passage earlier, He didn't think about his uncle Abram. He didn't say, no, no, you're the patriarch, you make the choice and I'll follow what you want. The honor that was due to Abram was for God and Lot's mind. He never considered God in his choice, in his decision. Simply put, Lot wanted what Lot wanted. And that was all that mattered to him. That's the place I want to go. That's the place that's going to give me the life I want. And his dream and his vision, well, it didn't work. If I were to ask for a show of hands of how many of you lived your life out and became what you wanted to be when you were eight years old, I don't think anybody would raise their hand. Well, we didn't, you know, we... we, Most of us, I'm not really sure what I wanted to be when I was eight. But it wasn't a pastor. I'm not sure if it was a cowboy when I was in eight. I was in West Texas. And that sandy land didn't make me want to ride a horse. So I'm not sure, but it wasn't what I planned. Lot had a plan. And he made his decision And that decision put him in harm's way when war broke out. 
when war broke out. You see, Lot had no idea about the history of the region he was in. All he sees is a beautiful territory. He doesn't know that for the last decade and more, the region that he pitched his tents was a region under the thumb of other leaders. Years before, Lot ever saw the Jordan Valley, four rulers of city-states, and when you hear those kings and where they're at, they're not huge countries, they're cities. Four rulers of city-states had conquered the region. That eastern alliance consisted of four kings. Ketolermer, king of Elam, uh, was the head. And those groups, those city-states, had received tribute from the western kings for 12 years. For 12 years they paid tribute. For 12 years they honored those kings back east. Elam, known as the son of Shem, designates a region in ancient Persia. Uh, In the 13th year, these western kings simply said, we're not paying anymore. Now, very possibly... There was something going on back in those eastern kingdoms, those city-states. It was not unusual for conquered countries to see a war going on, so now's our chance. And so very possibly they said, we can throw them off and they cannot harm us anymore. Now, none of the kings that are listed, neither Ketolemar, Amraphel, uh, Eleazar, Tidal, We don't know who they are. There's no other record. Because again, this isn't Babylon in its glory. It's not Egypt in its glory. It's a city-state. But the names do fit the picture of what was going on in Abram's day. And it was part of the ancient Mesopotamian world that city-states would come together to fight a common cause. Whatever the reason, in the 13th year when they rebel, it takes a full year for the kings to respond. Maybe they had to settle something back in the east. We don't know. And so these five kings probably thought, we got away with it. But in the 14th year, Ketolemar, the leader of this group, waged a war that was vicious, that was cruel, that completely annihilated their opposition. There's probably a reason Moses wants to emphasize that there were four kings against five. Because we normally think that numbers are the deciding factor. So, They come. They travel on the king's highway, which ran east east of the Jordan River. And all along the way, did you see all those other places they were capturing and destroying? Very likely they're doing that, at least in part, as strategy. We're going to go and defeat those four kings, so we're going to take care of these smaller towns and make sure there's no one who can come and help them. They make their way down and then they cross over. 
into the valley of Sidim. Uh, Sidim is the place of the salt sea, Dead Sea. And that's where the battle's going to take place. And so war breaks out. Again, that wasn't in Lot's plan. Nobody in this room planned September 11, 9-11. We don't plan for Katrina's as far in advance as we would like to. When tragedy comes swooping in, a lot of people are left completely flummoxed. He hadn't planned on that. But war breaks out, and we're told that some of the kings fell into the bitumen pits. Now, bitumen is a natural, it, it can be manufactured, but it's a natural occurring thing. Uh, it's basically a type of asphalt. In the Dead Sea region, uh, they would dig out the pits way back when to get that because it was a good building material and helpful to them. So they fall into the pits. Now, there is a bit of debate because the word that is translated fell into the pits can also mean they lowered themselves into the pits. If they lowered themselves into the pits, it's kind of like what happened when Gideon, when he's threshing the wheat in a wine press, They're hiding. They're hiding. And the rest of the group fled into the hills and the four kings pursued and defeat them soundly. It's important. Uh, Thomas Aquinas is the one who came up with the phrase just war. This is not a just war in any shape, form, or fashion. Kedar Loomer and his men, his, his allies, are not concerned with justice. They're not concerned with doing right. They're not concerned with what was fair. They wanted their tribute. They wanted what they want. Doesn't that sound familiar? Their motivations are very much the motivations of Lot when he made the choice. This is what we want. In his book, The Christian Warfare, a great man of God, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, said, Nations, please do not be completely offended by this, but I think there's truth here. Nations like individuals are not governed by common sense. I repeat, war is sheer madness. There's nothing to be said for it. Why then do nations fight and prepare for war? The answer is that they are not governed by their minds and intellects, but by the two-thirds that is underneath the surface. The part of the iceberg that you do not see. Greed, avarice, national pride, the desire to possess and to become greater than others. Now I know that we can make the argument of a just war, that a war needed to be stopped. I don't think anyone in here would question the, the need for World War II to have been addressed by our allies. But the war started because of Hitler's greed and seeking of power for Hirohito's desire for power. These men want power. And so as our story is moving, instead of an easy life, Lot became a casualty of evil. What he dreamed and what he thought he was going to get are completely disrupted. You see, when Kedolermer and his men, his allies, won the day, the kings in the southern region of Canaan 
were ultimately defeated. Their possessions, their provisions, and their people are now at the hands of this Eastern League of Nations. And the League swept away everything they wanted. Just took it up. And Lot was included in what they wanted. Now remember, the book of Genesis indicates that Lot was a wealthy man when he moved into the region. They wanted his wealth. They wanted power. And the idea of taking a powerful person along is still happening in this world. And he must not miss the last clause of verse 12. Because it tells us Sodom, Lot is not pitching his tent outside Sodom anymore. Verse 12 says he was now living in Sodom. Lot takes one more step even before the war that ultimately would have a terrible effect on his family. Lot and his family must have been terrified. I remember the days after 9-11. And I've told you before, I've been praying all my adult life for an awakening. And I've been praying, God, whatever needs to happen, whatever has to happen to get our hearts turned to you, Lord, do whatever it takes. 9-11 happens. And for a few weeks, churches were packed in this country. Until people weren't afraid anymore. Until the immediate threat was gone. And all of a sudden, they were back to normal. We were terrified, but it didn't bring lasting change. In hearts, anyway. They must have been terrified, but the story wasn't completely played out, was it? Because our story continues with a surprising hero committed to taking action. Now, you may think, why is he calling Abram a surprising hero? This is, he's the hero of these chapters we're studying. Why throw that adjective in? We shouldn't be surprised. Well, I want you to think about this for just a moment. Remember what Lot had done. Abram says, choose where you want to go and I'll take the rest. Lot cho- chose the most fertile place he could. Lot looked to see what was the best thing and took it. So, When I call him a surprising hero, Abram was a surprising hero because he did not take the course he could have. He didn't do what he would be in the minds of people absolutely right to do. You guys remember the bumper sticker? Don't get mad, get even. Still a part of modern life as well. By the way, when it says that Abram, the Hebrew, this is the first time in the Old Testament the word Hebrew is used. And it was probably used to separate him from Mamre the Amorite. Abram could easily have done nothing. You see, Lot made his choice. And he did that for no one but himself. I want what I want. Lot had pitched his tent toward Sodom and then he moved into town. 
And someone's written, besides, <coughs> even though Lot had made that choice and Abram said, okay, the better part of wisdom was they don't get involved. Remember, Abram is the one man in the story that nothing can happen to. In, in terms of it's over with. <coughs> the safest thing for him to do would just sit back and not get involved. And how many times have we chosen not to get involved? Our Kent Hughes wrote <coughs> how easily it is to fall into the trap of dismissing something bad because the person had it coming. No one could blame Abram if he had decided to let events take their natural course. No one could blame him. Well, one person could. Abram himself. We see the heart of this man. Abram cannot sit back and do nothing. It's not within him. And so what does Abram do? Abram became the champion Lot needed. Now, I've, I shared with you when we first began this that there are a large number of uh, scholars who believe that Abram may well have adopted Lot into his household. So he's his responsibility now. He's part of his group. So the event shows that Abram took that very seriously. And actually what he does, now this is one place where Abram doesn't pray to God, but guess what? God affirms that he did the right thing. And I'll share you with the ver in a verse in just a few moments. But Abram was, his story is foreshadowing something that's to come much later in the law. When God gives Moses the book of the law in Leviticus, and, and you can take a look at the passage of Scripture, Leviticus 25, 25 through 28, and 47 through 53, I'm not going to read it with you, for you today, but that's where this idea is found. Leviticus 25, 25 through 28, and verses 47 through 53. It is the idea of what became known as the Goel, the kinsman redeemer. You see, the law said, and Jewish life took up the call, the law said, Whenever one of your kin, the closest kin, when, when one of your people is in a situation where they are in deep trouble, something they cannot get themselves out of, the closest kin has to do something about it. And that would include those bad things that could happen, being taken captive, sold into slavery, Unable to pay to pay a debt, having to lease out the family property to just survive. Now, in the case of you're being captive, let's imagine that Zach is taken captive. Some evil person comes and snatches our Zach. Maybe he was watching the video for whatever reason, heard his voice and says, I want that guy singing for me, so I'm getting him. 
Robbie is now given the task of rescuing him. (laughs) Read the ransom of Red Chief. Uh, The kinsman would secure the release either by paying a ransom or forcibly rescuing him. And Abram chose forcefully to rescue him. By the way, you know who the greatest kinsman redeemer of all time is? The Lord Jesus Christ. Who's told his disciples, the Son of Man has come to give his life a ransom for many. Without hesitation, Abram sprang into action to rescue his nephew. Even before the law told him he'd have to do it, I'm ready to go. And how was he able to make that decision? With a God whose promise Abram believed and able men to follow him, Abram actually accomplished the impossible. This battle should not have turned out the way it did. In fact, there are a lot of scholars who write it off. Now, there there's some important things here that I will point out. The most important is that we remember what God has said to Abram. When God first calls Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees, He says, I am going to bless you and make you a blessing. I will bless all that bless you and I will curse all that curse you. And he was looking at not just Abram himself, but the household of Abram, his descendants. And so Genesis 12.3 kicks in at this place. These people have dishonored the household of Abram by capturing Lot. They are dishonoring God by what they've done. And then Abram, we're told, he assembled 318 men that were born in his household. Trained. What were they trained to do? Well, the story lets us know. There were several thousand people in Abram's household at this time. The 318 were meant to help protect. And he goes, and then, so, with that smaller number against Forkin, how could he win? Well, he did something the Israelites, the Hebrew people became very good at. Nighttime raid. Which can be very effective and very frightening for people. But the real hero here, even though he's not spoken of in the early part of chapter 14, in chapter 14, verse 20, a man we will meet very soon, the priest, Melchizedek, said, Blessed be the God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. God was with Abraham. This isn't a case of Abram only looking out for himself. His heart is, I must protect my household. I must do what I know God would have me do. And God acknowledges him and gave him the victory. It looked impossible, but it was not. And I'm pretty sure when Ketelemer and his cronies launched this war, they had no idea what was about to happen. They were oppressive, they were evil, 
They were hateful. They were greedy. And they had no idea who ultimately they were messing with. William Plumer made a statement about all those regimes that, that, uh, that have oppression and greed and all the evil thoughts of mind. He said, let men who delight in the cruelties of war remember that their day is coming. Babylon the Great falls. Persia falls. Rome falls. So having heard the story, very, very quick story. I know it's a long passage for you to stand. A lot of names that may haunt you in your dreams tonight. But it's a relatively quick story. A king, kingdoms, a group of kingdoms assault another. Lot is taken captive. And Abram, with his God, saves the day. Having heard this story of the great rescue, we need to learn the lesson. And this is not going to be a call to arms in terms of you have a right to bear arms, but we need to learn the lesson here. And what is the lesson? Our story challenges us to be people of action. When I look at this story and I understand what was being involved God's people being oppressed, God's people being harmed, the evil of this world on attack, I'm reminded that I am not meant to be on the sidelines watching the world go by. God has called me to have a place and play a role in the world that we have. And the reality is, and everybody here understands this reality, at least to an extent, There are wrongs in this world. And we know that. But there are wrongs in this world to which we must respond. You see, what often happens when we see something bad, we sit back and we shake our head and we tisk tisk and oh, that's horrible. But there are wrongs that are meant to be addressed by the people of God. Let me share you two Old Testament passages. And I believe these passages are meant for us today. Because I believe the whole Word of God is inspired. When Paul wrote, God's Word is inspired and is here for us. It includes the Old Testament. Amos chapter 6. I'm going to read verse 1 for you, then I'm going to read verses 4 through 7. And keep in mind, Amos is a prophet from Judah, the southern kingdom. He's gone to the north, the northern kingdom, and he's telling him, you're about to be judged. And in Amos 6, he tells the reason why. Woe to them who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall 
who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp, and like David, invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls, and who anoint themselves with the finest oil, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. Did you catch that? Everybody who's saying, everything's great, everything's wonderful, we have got a good life, I can have all the pastimes of this world, I can rest, because that stuff out there is not happening to me. God said in His Word, that is a dangerous place to live. A dangerous place to live. But that's not the only passage. In the book of Micah, chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, Micah begins, the first statement is probably, he's speaking for the people of Judah. He's told them all these sacrifices, they're not what, what's going to make God happy with you. And, and so they respond, well, what are we supposed to do? Verses 6 and 7 are probably the people speaking. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings with a calves year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams when ten thousands of river of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Micah, what are we supposed to do? You keep telling us judgment's coming. What do we do to avoid it? And they start making this outlandish. Do we have to do more sacrifices? Then verse 18. And if you underline in your Bibles, verse 18 is a verse you should underline within your Bible. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Act on your faith. Speak about the evils of a world that is full of hate. Help others see that there is a better life. Help others understand that there is a God who is calling them to walk in love. In short, folks, part of our great call as the children of the living God, we are supposed to care. We're supposed to be reaching out in love and kindness. We should be champions of the cause of justice and righteousness. We are called by God to live truly as His children. When we see wrong being done, we must take a stand. We must also acknowledge that there are battles ahead in which we must engage. And lo, this is why we read about the spiritual armor of God. There's a spiritual warfare going on. 
And every person in this room is involved one way or the other. You are either living in the cause of light and righteousness or you are living in a world of darkness and evil. We saw in our responsive reading that the true enemy of the faith are the spiritual enemies that we cannot see. Does that give human beings a slide when they do something wrong? No, we are responsible for the actions we do. But what Paul seems to be saying, the evil that men do are begin and are orchestrated by an enemy that is trying to destroy. And he was trying to draw attention to the fact that the greatest enemies are those we cannot see who are fighting God in all the different ways. A spiritual foe who uses people as pawns. As such, we cannot hide our heads in the sand like the proverbial ostrich. We cannot become Scarlet O'Hare. As tempting as that may be, I'll think about it tomorrow. We must take a stand with the armor of God in place. There is no room in the heart of a child of God for complacency. There is no room in the heart of a child of God to not care and not seek to turn this world. We are called to be salt. We are called to be light. And so we pray for the world. And when we have opportunity, we speak to the world about the light that comes that the darkness cannot defeat. We are called to share our faith. And that means we actually tell people why we love them. Charles Spurgeon said, If you are to have peace with God, there must be war with Satan. We must take a stand. And that can sound scary and that can sound frightening and we can think, what? How, Danny? Well, our victory lies in the God who is our strength and our commitment to follow His path. For us to have victory, we must trust in the Lord. For us to have victory, we must yield ourselves to His control. God alone can provide us what we need to win this fight in our lives. God alone can help us to rescue the perishing and care for the dying. All those who are falling as willing victims to the enemy, not realizing they are pawns at war with God. God alone can help us do what we are called to do. So Abram went out with 318 men because he knew God was with him. And 318 men, God won the battle. So what is it we are called to do? We are called to champion the cause of right. We are called to make a difference. We are called to share the grace, the mercy, the godliness of our Father. And to engage. Fanny Crosby, who wrote Rescue the Perishing. Blind hymn reader. 
when she was up in years, she visited the Macaulay Rescue Mission in New York City. She stood before a crowd of homeless, drug-addicted, and alcoholic men. And she asked a question. Is there a young man here who doesn't have a mother? And one young man timidly raised his hand. He explained that his mother died when he was very young. And Crosby asked the young man to come to the front. And he did so not knowing what to expect. And Fanny Crosby reached out and gave him a big hug and kissed him on the cheek. It touched her heart so much that she went home that night and wrote the words to the hymn we sang, Rescue the Perishing, Care for the Dying, Snatch them in pity from sin in the grave, Weep o'er the erring one, Lift up the fallen, Tell them of Jesus, the mighty to save. Years later, Ira Sankey was singing for D.L. Moody in St. Louis. He rose to sing Rescue the Perishing, but before he sang it, he told that story. And as he told the story of that young man who raised his hand, a middle-aged man jumped up and shouted, It was me! I'm the young man she wrote about. She kissed me. I could never get away from that moment. And as a result of one kiss, one act of love and compassion, a young man's entire life was changed. And he embraced the good news of Jesus Christ. So today, let's engage in the battle to rescue the perishing. Those who are in need of God's grace, let us learn from Abram. There are people in the clutches of evil. that need the hand of God in their lives. Not all of them are lost. There are believers who have stumbled and who have fallen and have begun to think in their lives, no one cares, no one one will know, no one will love me anymore. And Paul echoes through the centuries, when you see a brother fallen into sin, gently restore them. We have a call. We have a call to the rescue. So let's engage ourselves. And I'm asking every child of God in this building today to pray, Lord, let me be one who's ready to stand. Use me however you can. But Lord, Don't let me be passive. Give me the courage I need to do what you're calling me to do.